to see that the ones who are writing the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like Paul, were tracking exactly the same things that we are today. You know, it's, it seems odd to us that we could so readily identify with the stages of the ones who actually wrote the book. Because part of what we have accepted as a consequence of the fall is that these guys knew God, but we can't, and not to the same degree. We fail to understand that the very purpose for which Jesus came was to show us the Father. The reason that he came to show us the Father is because of the fall, there is no other way for us to see the Father. That's why he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It isn't so much that he's touting a certain exclusivity that gives him value. It is that he's stating the nature of being. Because of the fall, man's intellect changed from that which understood the ways of God to being actually the enemy of God and opposed to God. It, it was not a benign thing. We have, been, we have been so completely lied to by the evil one through people like Freud and Jung when it has been suggested that apart from God, we humans have inherent value. We don't. We don't. We have value when we fulfill the design purposes for which God made us. Apart from God, man has no value. Because what was lost in the fall was the only value man actually had. And that is to fellowship with God. The pleasure of the Lord in our being created and in our creation is the fact that we are capable of having fellowship with him. But if, we, if, if, that, if that possibility is removed, and to the extent that it is removed, we don't have inherent value. Then we're just, we're here as consumers. And with the superior intelligence that, that we have over the natural creation, we have ways of adapting to it to live out the three score and ten. But beyond that, there is no permanent value to the human being. The value that the human being does have, however, is, comes directly from being reconciled to God. And whoever is being reconciled to God will be reconciled first and foremost through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. That's why he didn't say there is a way and a truth and a life. And you may come to the Father in this way. He says, I am the way. Not that there is a way, but that I am the way. So instead, instead of giving us a series of things we could memorize and practice, and that becomes the way, it's to be found in him, in fellowship with him, part of his body, that we can actually find the Father. Now, what's interesting is that everybody 
who came to the understanding of this in the scriptures are saying the same things and we who are coming on in our understanding of God are also seeing the same things. It should therefore not surprise us in the least that increasingly as we grow in our understanding of God that we identify with the, not only with the things that are being said in the Bible, but we also identify with the struggles and the realities of the persons in the Bible. Because they're put there for our learning. That we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. What we've done is we've made religion the way. And what we've done is we've made methodologies the way. But all of this represents the corruption of wisdom and understanding because we've accepted an alternative to what in fact is the way. So, as we began last evening to, t- uh, to talk about the seven spirits of God, found twice in two references in the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and chapter 3, and the seven spirits of God that are before the throne of God. And you will note that the reference to the seven spirits is a lowercase s. And this distinguishes the seven spirits of God from the person of the Spirit of God. So when you discover the seven spirits of God in, in numerous references in the old, in old and New Testaments, but principally the two we looked at, one from the old, one from the new, first from the old being, uh, Isaiah chapter 13, which speaks of the spirit of, of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, counsel, revelation, I mean, uh, wisdom, counsel, understanding, knowledge, power, and the fear of the Lord. And then we, we found them again in reference in Colossians, which speaks in, in, in essentially the same order. And, and my observation was that once you find references of this kind in both Old and New Testaments, it's amazing how they run together and they say the same thing. The seven spirits of God then are not as if they are seven independent spirits as in seven holy spirits. Not at all. Instead, these seven spirits of God represent the seven distinctive gifts of God embodied in the person of the Holy Spirit meant to be given to the new creation, and this is how and it is why we are a new cre- creation. And we use the analogy of being, of having the, the effects of the fall offloaded, taken out of us, and replaced by the seven spirits of God. Right? Now, last evening we talked at some length about the spirit of lordship. And we referred to the fact that man did God did give to man dominion over the creation. But when he ceded that dominion to Satan, he lives now in creation, not as one who is to rule in creation, but now he lives in defense of himself in light of creation. The Lord Jesus, who was never subject to the fall, because and we made the remark that the lineage of Jesus is traced through his mother. His natural lineage is traced through his mother. 
because if and his father is God because God attributed to Adam the fall of man therefore Jesus had to be a child of the Holy Spirit in order not to be subject to Adam we who are born again though we are natural though we are flesh we also have the same parentage as Jesus in that we are born of the Spirit so we, are, we escape Adam by a change of paternity. We are born from above. Now, when that happens, that is why we're a new creation. And it is why God then, if, uh, we used the term last night, not, more for description than for accuracy, we are then re- retrofitted with what amounts to the seven spirits of God. And this is how you define the new creation. So lordship has been restored to us in creation. But the problem is, we have, we're very awkward in the exercise of rule. Once in a while, out of desperation, we might speak to the elements, and we are surprised out of our minds when they obey us. And we had some examples, and I, I deliberately used some examples, that some of the brethren here could identify with, and to testify that these things were true. We used an example from Big Spring, and we had we haven't had a number of, of brethren here from Big Spring who recognized and remembered when it, it rained not many days from then after the long period of drought. And it rained in such a way that no one could doubt it was the Lord. Eighteen inches of snow in April, when there had never been a snowfall in April, is a pretty convincing thing. So we're learning how to walk in rule. And we're beginning to understand that it is not simply you go around and you say rain, wait, or wind, stop, or what, you know, or those things. But you're beginning to learn what purpose is served by the miraculous. And we talked about lordship being the restoration of the miraculous, of the gift of miracles to the body of Christ. Now, one of the things that the enemy has done is that he's convinced us that healing is the only form of miracles. And indeed, in 1 Corinthians 12, healing and miracles are set apart from each other. Admittedly, some forms of healing are miraculous. But the, the gift of miracles is not the same description in Scripture as the gift of healing. They're separate from each other. Though the occurrence of healing at times is miraculous. But miracles commonly in Scripture are associated with the control of nature turning water into wine, increasing the the loaves and fish to feed the multitude, calming the storm, walking on the sea. We do not get to these things if we begin in a place of unbelief. We are not in Adam if we are in Christ. We have been restored in Christ, and Jesus never ceded lordship over the creation to the evil one. That's why when he offered him the kingdoms of the world in exchange for bowing down, bowing down and worshipping, Jesus said, where I am from, my paraphrase, I want to instruct you as to how this works. You worship me. I am the Lord your God. You know? And Satan recognized here was one who, though he was in creation, was not subject to the schemes of Satan. Now, so the seven spirits who began with the spirit of lordship and the restoration of the spirit of lordship. And with the admonition that 
the Spirit of God will direct us in how we walk in Lordship and in the restored Lordship. The Spirit of God will direct us how and when and in what manner. So there will be times when you'll do one thing and it'll work, and at times if you try the same thing, it won't work, because it's not a matter of rote and spells and rituals and words. It's a matter of being led by the Spirit moment by moment. We began then to open up last night the second of these uh, spirits of God, and that was the spirit of wisdom. As is true, there's some observations about wisdom that I'd like to make as we get into it. One is that there are two forms of wisdom. The wisdom that comes from beneath, the wisdom that rises up from the earth, and that wisdom is considered carnal and sensual and devilish. Those three words are used to describe wisdom that arises from humanity. Carnal, sensual, and devilish. Devilish is the source. Carnal and sensual because it's about the preservation of the flesh and it operates without an eternal purpose. Alright? The three descriptions of the, 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 the wisdom that is from below. First, we must recognize as a wisdom from below. And it will war with the wisdom that is from above. Because the source of the wisdom from below is the devil. Speaks of the devil as the father of lies and of deception. You can, and then the operation, the purpose and the means of the operation are carnal and sensual. Now, you will, you begin to notice the operation of this wisdom immediately after Man eats of the tree. Prior to eating of the tree, this is Genesis second, Genesis chapter 2, prior to eating from the tree, it was normal for man to fellowship with God. After he ate from the tree, it, the word says, and his eyes were opened. Now there are three aspects to the human being. He has a spirit, a soul and a body. First Thessalonians chapter 5 beginning at verse 24. Paul says, I pray that you may be sanctified through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be presented blameless at the coming of our Lord. The way that man lived prior to the fall, prior to the fall, his natural eyes could see the fruit of the tree and his spirit fellowship with God. Because God fellowships with us spirit to spirit. The spirit himself, according to Romans uh, 8, verse 11, the spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are the sons of God. So there's a witness born spirit to spirit concerning the things of God. So man had, in the norm in creation before the fall, the way that man lived was that his spirit fellowship with God and his eyes beheld the creation. So whatever he took in through his eyes was interpreted by his spirit in fellowship with the spirit of God. And in that condition, man walked with God. The normal condition of man, therefore, is for him, the way that God created man to function in creation 
is that you will see things with your eyes and interpret them with your spirit. When you see things with your natural eyes and you interpret them with your spirit, you will always see the purposes of God behind the scene. However, after the fall, man saw things with his eyes and interpreted them with his soul. And what happened? He went and he clothed himself and he hid himself. From whom did he hide himself? From God. What does this tell us about the way the soul interprets reality? See, we, we look through our natural eyes, we see, we, we see things and receive impulses through our senses. And you'll do that whether you're a spiritual man or you're a carnal man. But the way you interpret what you see depends upon whether you're interpreting by your soul or you're interpreting by your spirit. Look at Jesus in the garden. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And he says to Peter, could you not watch with me for an hour? But then after he makes his decision, he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He gave us this explanation in the 14th chapter of Mark. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit of man, to be alive, is in fellowship with the spirit of God. For the spirit of God is the life, the energy, the dunamos of our spirits, the dynamo, the, 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 the strength of our spirits. So when things hit you, through the five senses, and you interpret them by the Spirit, you will see the purposes of God. And that is to operate in a wisdom that is not carnal, not sensual, and not devilish. But the moment they gave in to, to, the, to, the, to the advice of the enemy, the eyes of their souls were opened. It was when they agreed that the enemy was right. You shall not surely die, you shall be as gods knowing good and evil, when they agreed that he was right, and they, and they acted upon that agreement, then they had another form of wisdom come to them. And that's the wisdom that the source of which is devilish, the operation of which is carnal, and the purpose of it is sensual, the preservation of the flesh. Now, it's the reverse. The, the operation of it is sensual, and the purpose of it is the preservation of the flesh. When that happened, man clothed himself and hid himself instantly. Because he, be be he became taken with the two imperatives of the human soul. The two most important things that the human soul is concerned with. Number one is your preservation. And number two is your protection. When you, are, when you are driven by the need to preserve yourself and the need to protect you, to provide for yourself and the need to protect yourself, when you're driven by those needs, your methodology is sensual and your purpose is carnal. And the wisdom that drives that is from below. It's devilish, the source of which is demonic. Because humans then are the true uh, true ancestors of Adam.
Now, there's a wisdom that... So, so the way that God made humans to live then in creation was that the spirit of man would blindly obey the soul of man. Excuse me, the, the other way. The, the way God made man to function in creation was that the soul of man would blindly follow the spirit of man. Because the life of your spirit, then, is the spirit of God in fellowship with your spirit. For if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who gave life Christ, gave Christ life from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies by his spirit who dwells within you. This is Romans 8. Romans 6 says, We owe an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to obey the lust thereof. And Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For if the Spirit of, of, of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who gave Christ life from the dead will also give life to your human bodies by His Spirit who dwells within you. That's how it works. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, because... The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed you from the law of sin and death. If you sin, you will die. Right? Now, so there's a wisdom that comes from below. And whenever it is in operation, this is the anatomy of it. Whenever that wisdom is in operation, it will always war with God. Because how it is directed and the purpose for which it is directed oppose God and are, are essential to the fall of man and to the state of the fall of man. Right? That's just the way it is. Everyone in the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, who is pursuing God comes on the same path. So we readily identify with the likes of Paul and Peter and James and John and the others. And, and God allows us to see them in the scriptures in all of their stages of development. As opposed to, on the one hand, presenting them in their flesh, frozen in time. Or on the other hand, presenting them fully grown up in the Lord, frozen in time. In neither case would they be much use to us. Because these things that are written are not written for those who have gone before us. They're written for our learning. That we might, I, might identify with them in our stages also of knowing God. See, that's why Paul says, and I'd like for us to, to look at this passage, which sets up the foundation of what I want to talk about when we speak about the wisdom that is from above. In chapter 3 of the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, I would like to pick up from verse 7, but to refer to what has preceded. What has preceded is Paul has laid out his progression as a religious man. And by implication, that which is religious 
is the wisdom of this world. Carnal, sensual, devilish. Even though it is religious. Perhaps we should read a little bit of that. Finally, let's read from verse 1. I'll read rapidly. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who have, we worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he details his religious experience. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. The French would say, la creme de la creme. As for Z, uh, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. How do you like for somebody, without boast, to say, I flawlessly kept the law? That's his resume. He's laying out for us his resume. Now then he comments on his resume. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. So in other words, don't, don't, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me because I've lost all this pedigree and my resume is no longer valid. He says, I consider the whole of that rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So note his commentary on those who keep the law or tell others to keep the law. He's saying it's a righteousness that comes from your own self. That means it is self-righteousness. The keeping of the law, according to Paul, is self-righteousness. And he properly states it because an assertion that if you keep the law, you become, that God becomes beholden to you, means that you and God have entered in a contractual level on which you and he are on the same level. You've done what he wants, and now he owes you. You've offered your righteousness, and you, you are requiring him to match your righteousness. So he's saying, the keepers of the law have spawned a form of doctrine which in the presence of Christ and the reality of Christ can only be regarded as self-righteous. There it is. A righteousness of my own. That is what you call self-righteousness. That comes from keeping the law. Now, you may keep the law of Moses, or you may just keep religious law. Materially, there is no difference. Because they both compare poorly to a righteousness that is from above. Alright? But that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. 
Now verse uh, 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in suffering, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now I want to, I, I want to comment on his use of the term, the resurrection from the dead. Because that's the gateway to this discussion on wisdom. The wisdom that is from above. Not that I have already obtained all this. You notice that? Here's Paul saying, I know where I'm going, but I haven't gotten there yet. I would suggest to you this is extremely encouraging to all of us. It certainly is to me. Because the thing that you have to do in religion is pretend that you are already there. And you set up all these elaborate processes, not only to convince yourself that you are already there, but to convince others and to maintain the mythology. No, he is seeing where he's going, but he hasn't gotten there yet, and he's a man enough of the truth to say so. That's why I say that these examples in the scriptures are extremely useful to us, because whoever is pursuing God is coming the same way, because the way is not a path or even a series of paths, the way is a person. So is the truth. And it's fellowship with the person by whom we have the revelation of the way. Not that I've already obtained all this or, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. So he says it twice. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. I'll come back to that. Then he makes this commentary on what he's just said. All of us who are mature should take such a view of these things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make plain to you. Only let us live up to the measure of what we have already attained. In short, you're not rocket shipping to this end process, but you come to it through the processes of God. That's why you go through many trials. That's why you have to suffer in this walk of a believer. Not that suffering in and of itself is a price you pay in exchange for anything, but it is normal to pursue God and for your soul to find that it is no longer ruling. And the, the, the loss of rule of the soul is accomplished only through suffering. He who has suffered in the flesh ceases from sin. The, the soul does not give up, will not give up, I, I would suggest cannot give up apart from being shown to be incompetent. No one makes a deal unless they're cutting their losses. When, when you agree to allow God to have some other part of your life that you have until now kept close to your vest, 
The only reason you'll ever do that, the only reason any of us ever does that, is because it's either make the choice to give him more or lose everything. So suffering is the vehicle by which the soul is redeemed. The redemption of the soul is that the soul learns to follow the spirit blindly. That's the redemption of the soul. The mind of the spirit controls the functions of the soul and then we're beginning to advance in our understanding of God. Right. Now, I want to, I want to, um, to cue in at this point another reading and then I'll go back to Philippians where we were and make some comments. And we probably will be close to being out of time at that point. Look at this please from 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the, to the church in Corinth. We're speaking of course about the wisdom from above. First Corinthians chapter 2. Yes, beginning at verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My, wisdom, my, my, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstration of, of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest in men's wisdom, but on God's power. Verse 6. Now, no, hold on a second there. Let me show you something about this passage. Because you've often heard people say, you've often heard preachers get up and say, look, I don't know anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Right? And that sounds wonderful. It sounds very humble. But, quoting that passage without any more understanding than that shows that the one saying it have disqualified themselves from standing up to preach. Here's why. Why did Paul decide that when he was among the Corinthians, why did he make a conscious decision not to know anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Because he said, I dumbed myself down when I was with you. Why? Go to chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants. Same brothers that he's writing to in chapter 2. This was their condition. This is why he chose only to speak to them about the most basic elements of their faith. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I... I I gave you milk and not solid food, for you were not, for, for you were not ready yet for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelings among you, 
Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? When one of you says, I will follow Paul, another I will follow Apollos, not mere, uh, 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 you are not, are you not mere men? So he's saying, while I was with you, and since you are behaving so carnally, saying, I want to follow Paul, I want to follow Apollos, we came in through Cephas. This is in fact what he's speaking to the Corinthians about. They had accepted the body as being divided, and he says, this is the proof that you were carnal people, mere infants. So when I came with you, I, I, I dumbed myself down again to the very basics, so I could teach you something. I decided while I was with you to fellowship with you on Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now come back to chapter 2, and I'll show you the rest of it. Verse 6. Is all that Paul knew, was all that Paul knew, Jesus Christ and him crucified? Verse 6 says, we do, however, speak a message, just chapter 2, verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. You, you remember seeing that in Philippians? All of you who are mature should have such a view of things. He says, we have a wisdom, and, and our subject is on the spirit of wisdom. He says, we do have a message of wisdom, but not of the wisdom of this age, not from beneath, carnal, devilish, sensual, or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, the wise men of this age, the carnal wise men. Why? Because they think in a linear way. All right, that's going ahead of myself a bit. Verse 7, no. We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that, the, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of the age understood it, or if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That is why you've been given the Holy Spirit who contains as his giftings to us the spirit of wisdom. Where is the wisdom from the Holy Spirit? Where does it come from? It comes from the depths of the being of God. Did you see that? And it's radically contrasted with the wisdom that is from beneath, that the rulers of the age have, that is carnal, sensual, and devilish. Now I had to show that to you before we could even talk about the nature of the wisdom itself. Where does it come from? It comes from in the depths of the person of God. How can you ever get anything out of the depths of the person of God? He tells us how. You can't reach in and get it because you don't know it. He says, your spirit knows what's in you, and God's spirit knows what is in God. Therefore, it is the sole and exclusive right of the Holy Spirit to reach into 
the depths of God and to retrieve the wisdom of God and to present it to you. Alright? This, therefore, can never be attained through the rational process of man. Which is how all theology since the Reformation has come about. The theology of the Reformation, if you read the works of the likes of Luther and Calvin and um, uh, what's the Dutchman's name? Erasmus. These people were bowing to the imperialism that was reintroduced, the imperialism of reason that was reintroduced to Europe in the days of the Renaissance. The Turks, when they captured Constantinople in 1452, caused the people who were in the Eastern Roman Empire to flee backward, to flee across and away back to, to, to Rome, I mean to Italy, to the Roman Empire. And they ended up in places like Florence, Milan, Napoli, and places like that. And they brought this wisdom with them that had been lost to the West since the 6th century when the various Germanic tribes had come down into the Western Roman Empire and, and reestablished a sort of paganism that wiped out the learning of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and the others. But, but at that point in history, being the 14th century, actually prior to the 14th century, and, and in between the Crusades, you had people like Aquinas and Abelard writing about, uh, com compiling, actually, uh, law, canon law, and writing, Summa Theologica, writing the compendium of theology. So these were the foundations when the Renaissance came on. And, and, and the Renaissance then required people, thinkers, to justify whatever they said in whatever subject area they spoke to the requirements of the rediscovered reason of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. And they launched us on this present course because the American denominations are nothing more than the modern children of these state churches that came out of Europe. The process to us is irretrievably lost and hopelessly corrupt. There is no way to get back, walking back through our history. There's no way to get back to the truth. Because the truth is a person, and the nature of the person of God is revealed to whoever seeks God by the Spirit of God, not by the process of Aristotelian logic. We have a fundamentally, structurally different process here. And the two cannot be made compatible. You see, the imperialism of logic is that it's, it, it defines things in terms of being either logical or illogical. So if you say you don't agree to logic as the process, then logic will say what you're saying is unreasonable and illogical. Both of which are bad according to logic. I will say plainly that logic or illogic are both irrelevant to our process because ours is the process of revelation, not reason. And the spirit of man has been constructed in such a way 
to as as to be able to receive from God revelation. The soul of man is constructed in such a way as to receive from the evil one the carnal wisdom of carnal men. So are you led by the spirit or are you led by your soul? That's the question. The wisdom of God can never sit well with your soul. The wisdom of God, I'll say it again, not because I'm impressed with the statement, but because it is true and I want to emphasize it. The wisdom of God can never be approved of by the human soul. Because its source is different. Paul likens the two to eating meat and drinking milk. Drinking milk being carnal, infantile, eating meat being mature. Right? Now come back to where we were in Philippians. And I want to wrap this in. We may have to do a couple, Andy, on, on the wisdom of God, because I haven't even gotten to examples yet. <laughs> this is simply laying it out. But that's the problem, you know, with the three points in the poem format, <laughs> you are guaranteed to remain in your infancy. I refuse to speak to the people of God in a condescending fashion. I refuse to. I refuse to address you as if you're infants and children. Children of God you are, but immature, you either are not, nor ought you to continue to be. The reason that the notions of clergy and laity have found such rootings among the people of God is purely the fault of the clergy. Because they're scared to death of the laity, quote unquote, and these are not terms that are biblical, by the way, but they're scared to death that the, the, the smoke screen behind which they hide is no more of availing than the Wizard of Oz. In the words, there's a song that says, Oz never did give nothing to the Tin Man that he didn't already have. The clergy doesn't give you anything that you don't already have. You have the Spirit of God living in you. And you have the Spirit of Wisdom. You just need to be awakened to the truth of that. And then some teaching that just strengthened this as a bulwark. Now let me show you this thing about Paul as he began to see this himself. It's no coincidence that you are now at the place where you are seeing these things. It's not a coincidence. Because whoever pursues God and begins to come to maturity will see the same things. That's why the book is written. It's written as a testimony of the process of God. That you might walk in the light. The book is not the truth. The truth is a person. The book contains truth about the person. But apart from the person, the book will be interpreted by whatever mythology you like. But when you know the person, it's somewhat like this. If I were on extended travel, and I wrote a letter home to Lucy. And, and Lucy was sharing it with a number of you. And there was some expression that I had used in it that, that wasn't clear to you. And some said, well, you know, Sam's pretty well educated and he writes in a certain way. 
and uh, he has a degree in English, so he would he would write, this is what the English construction means. Right? And Lucy says, no, that's not what Sam means. This is what he means. Would you believe the one who is giving you the scholarly interpretation of what I said, or would you believe Lucy? Lucy being, for those of you who don't know, Lucy being my wife. Who would you believe? Lucy. It would be foolish to believe the scholar if the scholar and Lucy disagreed. Why would you believe Lucy? Because Lucy knows me. Because she knows me. The scholars are trying to interpret what Jesus has said and what God has said. And they don't know God. But the spirit in you who searches the deep things of God the spirit in you who knows God is being set aside today in favor of the drivel of these quote-unquote clergy. I am in fact grateful that I do have a doctor's degree in something or other so that I'm not mystified by the fact that fellows say, well, I've got a doctor's in something, so this must be what it means. No. I'm telling you, you don't get it that way. The revelation of who God is comes to you by the only one who has been qualified to reveal the person of the Lord Jesus Christ or your Father. And that is the one who searches the deep things of God. That's the Holy Spirit. Now, come and see what Paul was beginning to see here and then we will we'll try to get to an example, but if we don't, we'll pick it up and give a second cut on the spirit of wisdom. He says at, at verse chapter 3 at verse um, t- verse 10 of Philippians he says I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Then he says, I haven't done that yet, but I press on to the goal for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. You note that he speaks of suffering as the preceding process. That's not accidental. That's what you go through because it disabuses the soul of the notions of the soul that the soul is in control. Alright? Now, He uses the term here, the resurrection of the dead. The normal word for resurrection is the word anastasis. Anastasis. But in this construction, there is a term ek anastasis. And as far as I know, it's the only time in the Bible when that term is used in connection with resurrection. Now, you're familiar with the word ek. In, in the scriptures, even in the Greek, even though you may not be, uh, you may not have spent much time in, in Strong's looking up things in the Greek. But you know the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Ekklesia. It's two words. Klesia is to be called and ek is out. So the out called or the called out. When he speaks of the out re- of ek Anastasis, he's referring to the out-resurrection. Out-resurrection. That means he wants to be 
somewhere out and above. While he's looking in on his own life being lived. It's somewhat like what John saw in the book of Revelation, the fourth chapter, when John says, And there was a door standing open before me in heaven. And suddenly a voice called to me and said, Come up hither and sit with me, and I will show you what is to come. And he said, and immediately I was in the spirit. And then he starts to talk about what he sees from the point of view of being on the throne. Seated on the throne with the Lord. This is the same thing. He says, God has called me heavenward in Christ. This is, in a, in a, at one level, this is a great secret. But in another level, it's what you naturally come to. When you've exhausted the process of human reason and you get older in, as a human being and older in the Lord, you begin to realize that there's something above your ceiling. There's something above your ceiling, something above the thresholds, and you want that. When you've run the traps of all the religious stuff, I am convinced that the greatest percentage of people in the churches today have already concluded there has to be something more than this. And when they go to the authorities who run the show and say to them, there has to be something more than this, they're routinely told, no, this is it. And then they're given a new work assignment to keep them busy, to distract them from this driving imperative that says, there is something more than this. Now this is the something more than this that you've been looking for. It's the out-resurrection. And Paul came to it. He began to see it before he came to it. And God began to reveal to him what it was. And what it was, was the call heavenward in Christ Jesus to sit upon the throne and to observe your life and the lives of everybody else around you going on while you're both a spectator and a participant. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I'm not going on you now. <laughs> How is that possible? How can you be seated on the throne and living here at the same time? It's the matter of wisdom. It's the matter of wisdom. And that is to see things from God's point of view while you are still one of the actors moving through. That's what it is. To have the point of view of the throne, as it were. To see as God sees. That's the wisdom of God. That's not carnal, and it's not sensual, and it's not devilish. But it is for God to show you how he sees what you are looking at. Now God will always speak to you spirit to spirit. His spirit to your spirit. And when he does, you will see what he sees. Now to your natural mind, it doesn't make sense. Because your natural mind is still occupied with being in control. And what God shows you is not just how it all turns out good for you. What God shows you is how he sees and what purposes he has 
in all the things you are looking at, in all the people you are looking at, and how your life is meant to play into all of their lives. But I'm telling you this, if and when you begin to see other people that way, here are some of the things that, that cease in you. They begin to come to rest in you. You never see people as your means of getting anywhere. Can you, can you hear what I'm saying? When you begin to see from God's point of view, you never see anyone as your means of getting anywhere. Therefore, you can see them the way God actually sees them. Because they're not toys for you to play with. They're not resources for you to manipulate. They're not people upon whose shoulders you could stand to have credibility. They are, in their own right, beloved of God. And God won't let you touch them in any way other than how he would touch them through you. That, for example, is how Jesus lived on the earth. This, Peter and John saw the same things. There's a man one time who came to buy the Spirit of God with money. You know? And, and Peter and John didn't say, you know, this looks like a good deal. We'll make you an elder in our church. You've got money. <laughs> we know that nobody does that today. <laughs> okay? they, they didn't say to the sorcerer, you've got money, you're ready to buy the gifts. Here, let's lay hands on you and give these gifts to you. And you come right in, just bring your money with you. We're in a building program and it'd be very helpful to us. You can serve God this way. Be an elder. They did not see Simon the magician as a means to an end. They saw him the way God saw him. And they said, you're a son of the devil. And you're going to hell. And your money is going to hell with you. And when they said that, the man repented. See, that's the part we don't get. We don't often remember. When they saw that and spoke it to him, the man repented. Because the heart was exposed. He says, pray for me that none of these things happen. That's a guy saying, I give up, guys. I'm through manipulating. Because they saw. We're trying to evangelize people. We're trying to do all these things without seeing the people the way God sees them. When you see people where God sees them, how God sees them, that's how you're going to relate to them. Okay? I challenge you, as believers in Jesus Christ, let the spirit of wisdom show you who the people are that you're making contact with, and see if that doesn't fundamentally change how you relate to them. I'll give you an example. Let's suppose... Well, Doug and I, Doug and I had this experience in, uh, in, no, in Kumla, in Sweden. 
we met with this woman who had been abused sexually by her grandfather at the age of eight. At the age of twelve, her father left. She left home early, married several times, and had gotten rid of, I think, three husbands. She had three children, one of whom was an 18-year-old who had died recently of an overdose of heroin because an older man uh, introduced her to heroin. She was living with the boyfriend and getting ready to dump him because she knew that he was going to dump her eventually. So she she had preemptive dumping. And that's how she was when we walked in that flat in Kumla. And when we sat down with her, she said, where was Jesus when my daughter died? And she, in a sense, she baited us to enter the conversation with us at that point. But we saw who she was. A woman whom every man in her life had disappointed. She she had the mental state that every man in her life had disappointed her. And so, Jesus being a man, what could he do for her? And these two men, what could they do for her? And that was how the enemy was lying to her. But we did not see a woman who was defensive and aggressively so. We saw a woman deeply broken, profoundly hurt, deeply shamed, Scratching for life. And depression was a constant companion. That's what we saw. So we walked her through forgiveness. And I remember when we said to her, well, you need to forgive these men. And you need to begin with your grandfather. And she said, why should I? So we had to explain that forgiveness allowed her to be turned loose from the handcuff that, that to which she was handcuffed to her grandfather. And even though he was dead, she was carrying him and all the train of baggage all these years. We had to assure her that what he did was wrong and God, who is the righteous judge, will judge him appropriately unless if he had repented, God would forgive him. If he had not, then God would judge him accordingly. But for us, our administration to her had more to do with her being free and not dragging the memory of her grandfather with her. And she could be free. She said, well, I could do that. So she forgave. Then we walked up the line forgiving every man. When we came to the man who had induced her her daughter to, to use heroin for whom there was an overdose, she said, I can't. She said, I can't. And old Doug Allen got in the act. He was like, we were on the hunt and he was on, he was on point. I'd never seen a man just pour out his heart and, and, and reach into the life of a woman. And finally she said, okay. She forgave that man. Then we said to her, you know, you've broken some hearts in your time too. In fact, you're getting ready to break one. I said, yeah, I know. So we talked, we, we, we showed her the need to repent of her sins. She did. 
Then we started to command the spirits of rejection, of fear, of self-destruction and loathing, of shame, you know, of murder, suicide, all these things that have taken residence in the different parts of our emotions. We, we drove out and she started to manifest uh, the, 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 the departure of these spirits. This one fellow who was with us, who used to be part of the Russian Mafia, had seen everything and had been in prison. He was just, he was gripping the table and staring at us like we were ghosts, I guess. He had never seen that. The woman was delivered and her countenance changed instantly. Years fell off her face. And a radiance came to her. I mean, she came up out of that chair and hugged every man in sight, including Doug and I. We saw her later that day and she was still going on in that. We've had reports. Because we saw her the way God saw her. Not someone who had been thoroughly exhausted by the spirit of religion. When you sit upon the throne with God, which is where we are, we are in Christ Jesus and we are seated on the throne, you will have wisdom about how to see people. Because you will see people the way God sees people through your eyes. And you will never see anyone as your means to getting somewhere. Instead, your whole mental state will change. Your whole attitude will change. Because you're being led not by your soul. You're being led by your spirit. And you're beginning to see and understand how God sees everything. And your place in the order of things. The ek anastasis, the out-resurrection, is quite literally Paul's desire to be seated on the throne and to see what God sees. Even though he is one of the, was one of the actors in the play. He wanted to be able to be in the play and to see himself in the play and give himself direction how to act on the stage from his place on the throne. That's what he was beginning to see. When you do, it's amazing any degree to which we do. It's amazing how the view changes and how our perception changes. What I want to do is I'll, I'll finish this. Doug, how am I doing on time? Okay. For the sake of this, of this tape, I'll go on uh, for, for a few more minutes. And, um, but then we'll have informal discussions because my point in this particular set of tapings is to have something that people can pick up who are not on this trip and be able to, 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 to gain something from. You, with whom we are on this trip, we'll have further discussion. I began to see and to, un to understand some of these things with my own family and my own, in my own household. My daughter Tamron, Lucy and I were talking about it just yesterday. My daughter Tamron is a musician. Lucy was saying how she never paid any attention or didn't pay much attention to the music in a movie until Tamron, who is a classically trained musician, plays the bassoon or played the bassoon, began to tell her you know, about the music. She began to notice the music in uh, in the movies. 
Well, some of you have heard me tell this before. But I had the idea, of course, that Tamron needed to be a lawyer. Because bassoonists have great lung capacity and they seem to live prodigiously long periods of time. And I saw no real opportunity for her, even though she was very talented, saw no real opportunity for her to to join some major symphony. Uh, as an example, her bassoon teacher taught aerobics and bassoon, you know, kind of like bank and burger. And <laughs> things you can do anymore going to the bank uh, at a burger stop. Anyway, so we had the idea that uh, our daughter would needed some more reliable way of earning a living. So, you know, I began to manipulate and direct her toward the law. I even suggested to her there was a form of music called entertainment law. <laughs> and she said, Dad, you know. So, but but under my pressure to conform her to what I thought was best for her, she became very depressed and somewhat rebellious and uh, couldn't seem to get her feet under her. In fact, she dropped out for a period of time, dropped out of college. So about a year ago, she came up, she came to see me, and she and I went fishing at a stocked pond called Shady Lakes. We didn't catch anything. The stocked pond. <laughs> So I said to her sometime during the fishing, I said, uh, Tamron, why are you on the planet? Why are you here? And she looked at me and said, Dad, meaning of, ever, of anyone you should know. She said, Dad, I was put here to make music. She said, I was put here to make music. And I said to her, I said, well, I had concluded that. But I wanted you to take ownership of it. And you need to take ownership of it in my presence. Because I'm the one that you have to get through. You know, everybody else knows what you just told me. But you don't know that I know that. So I said, what I, I want first to repent to you. Because I've tried to make you into something other than what God made you to be. So I'm a, And I have the authority to try. So I repent to you. And I said, secondly, the evidence of my repentance is I'm willing to put at your disposal some of the money I've been saving for you to go to law school. So I said, let's have dinner this evening. Lucy was gone to Denver. And Nick was somewhere. I think he, I don't remember where Nick was a year ago, but it wasn't with Rebecca. Okay. <laughs> I said, let's have dinner tonight and we'll talk about what you need to get started in your musical career. And so she said, okay. Well, we had dinner that night and she, this is a girl I couldn't, I couldn't have, uh, uh send me, uh, information on a bill. But by that afternoon she had a complete listing of every item she would need. <laughs> From mid-afternoon to early evening, she had a complete listing of everything she needed to get on with her life. And uh, and we put some of the money at her disposal. 
and uh, she's gone on with it. Now, when she calls me, it isn't dad, this is Tamron. Now it's daddy. <laughs> so I just say, how much? <laughs> well, I had to change because I did not see her. I did not choose to see her. I had authority in her life. She was under my oversight as a father. But I chose to see her according to my flesh. My concern of her making a living. And I did not see her the way God saw her and sees her. And I needed to change. She really didn't need to change in that respect. The other respects in which she needs to change. But not in that respect. Who she was and who she is is something that God has foreordained for her to be. There were good works prepared in advance for you to walk in. That means that every person has a destiny and you are here to fulfill that destiny and God is the one who gave you that destiny. What the church has done is dismissed the thought that you have a destiny and what it's, what it's chosen to do instead is to define a broad picture for a particular group of people, usually the pastor and the elder's vision, or the denomination's vision. And your role and function is to fit in somehow into that. This is the very opposite of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that those who have authority have the responsibility to help you find who God made you to be and to assist you to function in that capacity. These are two fundamentally different forms of wisdom. The wisdom that is from beneath says, this is what we can do for God. So let's get as many people together, let's, let's, prep, let's pep talk them into this vision, let's figure ways to motivate them to go forward, and let's get everybody going in the same direction. And when we're done, we can say, what a wonderful thing we've done for God. And Jesus will say, it is utter rubbish. King James would say, it is dumb. It has no value. But seated on the throne with him, you can see yourself and you can see everybody else through his eyes. That's the wisdom that originates from God. When you begin to see no one any longer according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, then it will change the normally difficult things that, that, that are structural problems with our relationships. It will change those things for you. Some of you have heard me tell the story of Lucy and how she made lists for me. And the one occasion whereupon she made this list of three things. We're about to have dinner. She sends me to the store with the list that contains three things. And I'm thinking to myself, behind my eyes, I'm thinking, you know, this woman thinks I'm an idiot. That I can't remember three things. I'm a man. Every man knows that you can remember 50 things. But, <laughs> yeah? Can I, can I have a witness? <laughs> but, <laughs> Well, let me get through with the story, <laughs> and we'll wrap it up. 
Well, uh, so I took the list, stuck it in my pocket, never intending to look at it again. Because some things are less sugar than the nickels were. You just take it, stick it in your pocket, and go on. Don't comment about it, because you'll say the wrong thing. Well, <laughs> well I, so I headed, got in the car, headed down to Albertson's Grocery Store. Well, I pulled out of the residential area where we lived, pulled onto a fairly a four-lane road, and this fellow came around and cut me off, just just like that. Well, anyone could see that a man who will do a thing like that doesn't belong to God. If you don't belong to God, you know, you know where he's going. And there's really no harm in prophesying where he's going. <laughs> so I pulled up at Albertson's grocery store after I'd prophesied. I didn't know who I was. Didn't know where I was or why I was there. But I did remember I had a list. <laughs> kind of like in Texas, the guys have their names written on the back of their belts. If you have a particularly bad drunken experience, you can have somebody tell you who you are. <laughs> it's by reading your belt. And the moment I took the list out, the Lord said to me, you're a man given to prophesying. You need a helper who will make you lists. So from that time on, I haven't considered it an infringement upon my manhood to be given a list by my wife. In fact, I recognize her grace of administration, and I ask for the list. The only regret I have is that sometimes she pursues this grace of administration with unnecessary zeal. point is, whenever, whenever you see someone the way God sees them, it will change the stumbling blocks in your relationship. And this is wisdom. I'll say it again and I'll conclude on this note. Whenever you see anyone the way God sees them, it will change and remove the stumbling blocks in your relationship. And this is the way it ought to be. This is the wisdom. This is, these are examples of how God's wisdom makes our path clear in this world. Right? Very well. Thank you and God bless you.